The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. This leaves the blue go live button, which Genevieve will be relieved to know is blue. I have acquired anxiety. <laughs> it, and we're live. It is Thursday, July 29th, 2021, 5.01 p.m. The sky is menacing here in Washington. It is clearly getting ready to a thunderstorm which is a bit of a bummer because I have literally just poured a very large quantity of resin outdoors into a mold with my uh, uh, fancy pieces of cherry wood that I cut the other day. Um, and uh, it is uh, gonna get rained on. You just saw the lightning, heard the thunder, and um, uh, I think there's going to be a layer of water on top of uh, my uh, resin. Fortunately, you will all be relieved to know, and I am going to tell myself this over and over again until it stops raining, water and resin, even in its liquid form, are not missable with one another. Uh, missable being a word I am dredging up from my memory of high school chemistry, which means mixable. For some reason, it's missable in chemistry. I don't know why. Uh, they they will not miss, and so um, the water will just sit there on top of the resin. And when the resin has fully cured, I will pour it off, and uh, I will act like nothing happened, or so I'm going to be telling <laughs> myself for the next twenty minutes or so as we get what is looking to be like a hell of a storm. We are not allowed to have fun anymore. <laughs> but in lieu of fun, we are allowed to have Robin Dembroff join us from New Haven. Uh, Scott, will you do the honors of introducing our esteemed guest? Uh, absolutely. I just want to say um, that um, uh, Robin is uh, my colleague uh, um, in the philosophy department. Um, the Foss Department and the Law School are very missable. Um, uh, we we inter we we interact um, a, a lot, and so uh, really thrilled that uh, Robin. Is this your third year at Yale? Starting my fourth year. Oh, starting my fourth year. Okay, so so Robin does does like one of the only aspects of philosophy that um, that actually matter to people. Um, uh, and so, um, I wanted, I it would, it, and, and not only do like questions of gender and sexuality, which is what uh, a lot of what you work on, um, people really are interested and care about this subject and really, um, uh, are hungry for clear uh, analyses of, of this, but also, um, and we'll get to it later, um, you have, um, submitted in not an amicus brief an amica brief right uh, no uh yes. no an, uh, yeah an amica brief yeah because that's the neuter isn't that the neuter form 
You know what? Latin yeah. is. I, I did like okay. one year in second grade, so. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, see, I got. You. Yeah. Uh, well, um, we we didn't we didn't learn in law school, but um, <laughs> so anyway, a, anyways, but um, I a, a, your your work um, has um, not only clear relevance to the to the law, but it, it, it you wrote a, a brief for the Bostock case, um, and you were on the winning side. Um, so uh, I, I'd love to talk about that too. But before we get into that kind of um, into the weeds, I was wondering if you could tell us about this field that you work in called social ontology. I love that phrase. It's such a great phrase, social ontology, but it's it sounds scary. Maybe you could just tell <laughs> us what that is. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I kind of do two things, so gonna, and they're related to each other. But so I'm going to talk about social ontology first. But I, importantly, I don't just do social ontology. I also do feminist ontology, which is a particular way of doing social ontology. Um, so by social ontology, I just mean that people who do are in the field that I'm interested are aiming to describe in a clear way how the relationships we form with other people, with groups, with institutions, and with our environment position each other and create different kinds of patterns and, prod and um, processes that we think of as constituting the social world. And so we want to be able to like understand that process and then also name different pieces of that process or the products of that process. And then as far as what it means to do feminist ontology, um, there's really great work by people in feminist epistemology like Elizabeth Anderson that are about how the explanations that we give for phenomena are really relative to what our interests are and what our aims are and what we're asking about. And so when we're doing feminist ontology, we're interested in questions of gender injustice specifically and asking, okay, how do we identify the things in the social world and describe those things that create this thing that we think of as gender injustice? I see. So, can I just so the it, it I mean just as at a first cut it sounds like social ontology like kind of giving clear accounts of the social world the parts of the social world and then feminist ontology which is um, an attempt to try to see the ways in which these kinds of classifications contribute um, exacerbate or ameliorate um, um, uh, forms of injustice, um, it sounds like they would um, use very different methodologies, right? The first one, I, I, I mean, I know you're going to you're going you're going to say you're going to say that they don't, but you might think, well, when you're just describing the world, you're describing the world, um, and you're not bringing your interests to bear on that. You're just trying to say, is race a real thing? Does it figure in our best account of the world? Like. How does uh, sex, what's the proper account of sex? Again, well, you know, what's the best theory of the world? Would, what, what role would it play? But when you're doing feminist ontology, well, then that's what you're, you're, then you're worried about justice, then you're worried about normative considerations, not just the way the world is, but the way it ought to be. But I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that you, you don't, you don't, you don't see this bit, a big distinction between the two ways. No, I think it's, I think it's more of a distinction about honesty of methodology than an actual difference of methodology. And I think people that don't admit that they're coming from a particular place of particular interests with certain concepts and language that carve up the world in certain ways and make those things significant in certain ways. Someone who doesn't recognize that about themselves and they think they're 
you know, God's eye view, speaking from nowhere. They're doing the same thing as feminists. They're just like hiding a big piece of what they're doing. So when it comes to identifying an individual's normative priors, is there a process that would be helpful to them that you have found is particularly better than others? Well, I think one of the main ways for me that it's become really apparent in doing my own work, what some of my biases are, is by doing things like reading history and sociology and anthropology and talking to people in other disciplines and so on. And just, I think, getting a sense for the vast amount of difference in what people take for granted about how to understand the world can reveal to you what things you were assuming were universal that are very much not. Do you, do you, is the kind of, um, um, is the kind of normative inquiry um, that you're engaged in, um, it, does that help explain why these kinds of debates are so ugly? You, is, you mean debates about like gender ontology or? Yeah, exactly, yeah, gender, gender ontology or, or race is another, is another um, uh, aspect, you know, people thinking that race isn't a real thing um, and then if people say, no, actually, there, it is a real thing. I mean, it's it, 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 it really hard to talk about these subjects um, without, like, getting into a shouting match. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think social ontology itself can answer that question, but I think it can give us helpful conceptual frameworks for thinking about the question. So, for example, we can have concepts like injustice and power and understand how social systems are formed to maintain power in certain forms, to distribute resources in certain patterns and so on. But then that doesn't answer the further question, which is the almost the, the psychological or like affective question of like, why do humans love power so much? Why is that so important to us? Um, and I think like no amount of describing power will answer that question. Just quickly, what do you think though? What, what is your, if I had to ask you, um, one of the things that's really actually really interesting um, about the field, just from a sociological perspective is how, um, how is how, um, aggressive it is and how um, uh, uh, I would say vicious it is. Um, uh, Which field? You mean um, the discussions of g gender and gender identity issues or? or? Yes, yeah, and I especially mean in philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe, maybe so this So you is mean the academic conversation is vicious? Yes, I actually maybe this is something we should, I, I may- So, so this is something that's totally, I, I think uh -oh. totally new to me and and I think probably totally new to a lot of people in the uh, audience. Actually, that, that, I have to say that's Start so, there. Yeah, that, I think that's actually, I, I just took it for granted, but obviously why should I take it for granted? I mean, maybe, uh, obviously Robin is better placed to describe, <laughs> to describe You it. really want me to spill the tea, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I mean, is it not, it isn't not, Right. Or would you not agree with the following th um, um, statement that um, the philosophy of gender is a particularly fraught area of, um, of philosophical discourse and especially online philosophy, philosophy Twitter and, and, and the like is a particularly ugly. Um, lots of canceling, lots of um, uh, so the, the gender critical slash turf 
uh, view and the kind of the more trans rights view, they've really, um, uh, there's real antagonism between them. Maybe. Uh, Philosophy of gender. Uh, I, I, I would just add some context, which is that philosophy of gender used to be ignored in philosophy, and for the same reasons that it was ignored, it is now contentious, right? So it's, it's not like it's always been contentious. Okay, so, so walk us through, for those of us, I mean, I know the term turf because of J.K. Rowling, not because of philosophy. Um, uh, walk us through... Uh, you know, I, I feel like this is an area that I have sure. some, I have a trans kid, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not a naive in this area, but the idea that there was a serious, uh, that this was a seriously contentious issue in philosophy is totally new to me. So walk us through what the issue is that was traditionally ignored and now is contentious for the same reason that it was ignored. Yeah, so I should say, it, there was philosophy of gender, it just wasn't happening in philosophy departments, right? So where the the turf movement, trans-exclusionary radical feminism, that comes from a bunch of people who were doing feminist theory, or what I would think of as feminist philosophers, who are also intertwined with the women's liberation movement in the 1960s and 70s. And then with the rise of things like synthetic hormones and growing um, visibility of trans people and access to them changing their legal markers and so on. The women's liberation movement faced a choice about whether they were going to include trans women in their movement and consider trans misogyny one of the things that they would care about along with other forms of misogyny. And at that point, the movement split. People like Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon said, yes, anyone who's being positioned as a woman in the world is a woman and they are part of our movement. And then other people like Janice Raymond, who are the kind of starters of the trans-exclusionary feminist movement said, no, we think that anyone who has or had a penis has a certain kind of social privilege that none of us have, and so they fundamentally differ from us in this important way and they shouldn't be part of our movement. And that, I mean, that has now spilled into academic philosophy departments, but that conversation has been going on for 40 plus years. Okay, and so I, I guess my, I, I, I've been aware of that conversation uh, it has always seemed to me to be a conversation within feminism and in the relationship between feminism and the trans community. Um, walk me through what it's doing in philosophy departments. I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure I see, I, I suppose there's a, Mm -hmm. a set of philosophical elements to it, but I'm not sure why it would be an especially antagonistic thing in, say, philosophy departments rather than in women's studies departments or, mm -hmm. you know, LGBT studies, right? Like, what is it, how did it get into philosophy departments and why is it particularly antagonistic there? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's in philosophy departments because the question that that split hinges on is a question of social ontology. So like liberation movements, like the women's liberation movement, right, it's identified in terms of a group, women. And so when you have a disagreement about the metaphysics of that group, what is this category? Who are the people that are being oppressed as members of that category? Who is our movement for? 
that creates a big philosophical question of like what how do we describe the things in the social world and their relation to certain normative aims of justice and so that conversation again it hasn't only been happening in philosophy departments but because that question is one that is so deeply has to do with like the semantics of gender terms and epistemology and metaphysics i think philosophers have a lot of the tools that help articulate that discussion in an important way so so but but what what has happened is that when the subject migrated to the philosophy departments it took on a kind of character which you know philosophers kind of pride themselves on not being that is like kind of hot-headed um like a, a, um um uh what's it what's what um um uh, just really, um, and I'm trying to put it in, in a way which is um, not gendered, emotional. <laughs> yeah, more, yeah, no, 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 no. I was just like trying to be respectful of both sides, but it 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 it, it does seem as if people can't talk to one another in a rational, calm way. So I just saw on on Twitter today that Kathleen Stock. Who ha who is identified with the gender critical um, uh, trans exclusionary radical feminist movement? Um, ha wrote this another kind of defense of uh, her academic freedom um, to um, to state her views um, because there had been various boycotts of her and her talks at different philosophy departments, and that's a kind of a that is. That's a kind of an unusual thing to see, not only in academic um, departments, but especially in philosophy. So why, why is it that contentious? I mean, there have been lots of identity issues that have cropped up over the last 50 years that have greatly divided uh, uh, philosophers uh, and people who uh, work in areas that are uh, that are philosophy adjacent or, or uh, that you know people proudly say well we disagree about everything but then we go have a beer and we're, we're best of friends <laughs> you know the sort of John Hart Eli or, or, or uh, Robert Bork uh, 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 what's his name from Yale, uh, names escaping me. Bickle. For a Bickle. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know that that sort of um, why why has this uh, become uh, interpersonally poisonous in this way? I think I would resist the categorization of it as interpersonally poisonous. I think in my experience, the, there have been. A couple people who are part of the more like queer and trans aspect of philosophy who I think get heated sometimes and say things that they shouldn't that does happen but overall I think the conversation that's happening among those people is actually much more like nuanced and philosophical than the like things that are being self-published on medium 
by people who are in philosophy. To, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that it's bad behaviors only on one side, but I just think in terms of like the philosophical conversation, the, the things that are being published by people who are interested in the nuances of like things like woman as a social category, are, those conversations are happening in a really different way than self-published things that are about how like woman is ultimately just about whether you have a vagina or I should say born with a vagina or not. Right. I, I guess the thing is, right, it's just like Twitter isn't real life. What you see yeah. on social media, like you, you're, you're seeing like the, the vocal minority, perhaps. Although I have to say, as somebody who's convened many papers in the last five years, um, I have had more, a, a lot of speakers say, please don't bring up any gender or trans issues um, as an example, because you'll just throw off the entire conversation. And I think that there's something, there's a truth that, but I want to just, I want to, yep. uh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, um, God knows when I talk about inclusive versus exclusive legal positivism, like all hell breaks loose too. Um, so I'm like, I'm not, it's not that I don't know about like, um, you know, vicious emotional. It's because it includes the word exclusive. <laughs> you know, that's what it has in common with TERFs. Right, 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 yeah. exactly. Although, but, just, but, but I this, just think so, that's not about philosophy. So listen, yeah, people, when you when you name your movement, <laughs> don't include either inclusive or exclusive. It's just asking for trouble. Yeah, really, it really is. But I, I want to, I, so I want to, I want to talk to you um, uh, uh, about um, what you were saying about, so the reason why, you're, in your answer to Ben, about why um, people like you are talking a, 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 a about gender because you're a philosopher. Um, you're talking about gender and because it's part of this social ontology, it's part of the social world, and philosophers are interested in, in, in analyzing um, uh, the world and the social world. But then there's this issue about the law and that the law cares about these categories as well. They care about like whether, you know, what what discrimination on the basis of sex is, discrimination on the basis of, of race. You know, so there, so the law cares about these categories as well. It kind of stands to reason because the law regulates the social world. So obviously it's going to be, it's going to make reference to these social categories. So I was wondering if you could tell us about um, the way in which your work um, has intersected with um, the questions which which were raised in the Supreme Court case of Bostock. Yeah, of course. And here, um, shout out to my collaborator, who is also our colleague, Issa Kohler-Hausman. So yes. all this work I've done in collaboration with Issa. Um, but I think, so here- just, just before you answer that question, yeah. for those who don't know, Bostock is the Supreme Court decision decided at the end of last term, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, holding that uh, the uh, language of Title VII uh, uh, anti-discrimination laws that refer to discrimination on the basis of sex includes uh, a prohibition against uh, 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 discrimination on the basis of gender uh, identity. Um, 
Great. So, so I think here again, I mean, I'm sure Issa would be coming at it from a different angle, but just with my, the way I'm thinking about it as a social ontologist, when you get this phrase like prohibition because of sex, that immediately raises the question of what the category sex is that's being referred to there. And that's where I think, you know, you saying before it's a social category, right? It seems like that's really important for us to be able to articulate why it has to be a social category. Um, because for example, Isa has this example of people with uh, bunions. She's always saying, if, if discrimination on the basis of sex literally meant the fact that I have a penis caused something to happen in the world, that'd be like saying you can't discriminate because of bunions, right? Like if it's just some feature of bodies that doesn't mean anything about how you get treated by other people, then why would it be that? But then it raises this question, okay, well then, what is it as a social category and why do we care about it in the law? So a lot of what Issa and I are up to in talking about this is to point out that when courts um, say that, say in the Bostock case, firing a gay man is not discrimination because of sex, there, it seems like they're assuming a bad ontology of what that category has to be. Because if the category is a social category, then it's one about how you are positioned by other people based on how they, they see you as measuring up to their ideas of men and women and what men and women ought to be and what it means to have certain body parts and how you ought to act and so on. And if that's right, then of course firing a gay man is a form of sex discrimination because the reason he's getting fired is because he's seen as doing something wrong as a man, where like as a man is like an essential part of that explanation. Right, right, that is that he, uh, that this person has a penis and is acting in a certain way. So well, they that, don't know that, right? It's always assumed. Very rarely do you actually. Right, right, right. right. I, I, yeah. In the, in that's the, important, I think. You're right, yeah. right, right. So it's not, it's, it's like, so if people did interesting things with bunions, um, then bunions would become an interesting social category, but it isn't. Um, and so what, what, what it, that, so you actually filed an, an amica brief um, uh, in in favor of it would be in favor of Bostock, correct? Yeah. Um, and did did you uh, the so the court um, in a, an opinion um, written by Justice Gorsuch um, came out in favor of both um, um, uh, uh, that is illegal to discriminate both on on the basis of uh, of, of gender identity but also sexual orientation. So, I mean, it was just quite, um, had, had quite um, progressive consequences. But the argument was um, a textualist argument. Uh, um, like, was this person um, discriminated because they were a man um, in the case of um, somebody who, let's say, a trans woman? Um, I would say, I don't even know how to actually even how to formulate it. it. Even though they were born a man, they are being treated according to standards of a trans woman, and that is that itself is um, discrimination on the basis of sex. It, would you? Yeah. It, 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 yeah. So that would you? It, it, did you find the reasoning of? Uh, Gorsuch compelling. I mean, that I know he came out on your side. Um, did you find that the the textualist reading was the right reading, or would you have? Uh, did you argue for something different? 
No, I, I don't. I don't think it was a uh, a well reasoned opinion for the same reason that you know Alito's dissent was a well as a poorly. I mean, they did the same thing. They ran the same textualist argument, and they just like fiddled a little bit with the variables. And the problem is that you're assuming they're discrete causal variables in the first place. Like gender and sexual orientation are not distinct positions that people occupy. They are simultaneous, right? And then like the example I just gave, or if you fire a gay man, you could explain that as him being evaluated badly as a man because he's gay, or you could explain it as him being evaluated badly as someone who's attracted to men because he's a man. You know, right? You can like run it different ways. And that's just what's going on in, in those reasonings. So, so, so what would be the right way to interpret if you were not trying to persuade uh, a textualist or two to side with, you know, if you had no political calculations to make about how to assemble a five justice majority, but you were simply trying to articulate what the philosophically right way to construct a 1965 statute that says because of sex that clearly isn't thinking about any of this stuff. In fact, I yeah. think the history of that provision is that it was kind of thrown in there as a poison pill to make the race discrimination provisions look ridiculous. Like, oh yeah, well we won't, we'll, we'll, we'll show them, we'll, we'll prevent them from, from yeah, discriminating true. against women too. <laughs> then, then they'll see how ridiculous they're being. I think that's literally where the, where the because of sex language comes from. Um, so you've got, you've got no aid from the legislative history. You've got this textual language that I agree with you is amenable to a lot of a lot of disparate social constructions. So what's the right way to understand it given that and given you know given the multiple multivariate analysis that a given person presents, you know, I'm I'm a short, straight guy who's, mm -hmm. you know, who people look at and say, uh, oh, he's male, but nobody, you're right, nobody ever checks. And, um, <laughs> you know, like, so what, what would somebody have to do to discriminate against me because of sex in a proper understanding of the statute? Okay, so that is a huge question. So I might be talking for a second. Go for <laughs> it. This is why we right. do a show of indeterminate length. Yeah, and we pay, and, and on the we pay for the whole hour. So, <laughs> so, just, so, so just, I mean, really, it's uh, the okay, so is yours. Yeah. Basically, what you're asking about is like, what is the metaphysics of injustice? Like, what is the metaphysics of how uh, injustice happens? And like, what's the place of the law in intervening in those systems? Right? Because the whole point I take it, I think that like everyone should at least agree, the point of anti-discrimination law has to do with justice, right? It has to do with seeing unjust patterns of how people are treated in the world, what sorts of resources they get, what sorts of status they have, and trying to change those relations. It has to it has to mean changing people's social positions. 
the way to change social positions and patterns of social positions in a society is to change the social practices. You have to change how people behave in order to change how they interact with each other and how they put each other into hierarchies. And not just individuals, right, but also like institutions and corporations and states. And like, this is a really big deal. And so if you have a law that's saying people should not discriminate on the basis of sex, it has to be something about the remaking of those practices, the remaking of those causal relations that are putting people into positions of subordination or disadvantage relative to other groups of people. And so if that's what we're asking, then we need to go to the next question, which is like, okay, well, what are those relations? What are the relations that say on the basis of sex put some people into positions of privilege and other people into positions of disadvantage? And that doesn't have to do, as you're pointing out, with like what's in fact under your in your pants. That has to do with how people are evaluating you, sometimes as soon as they see you, sometimes based on limited information, sometimes in algorithms, based on their ideas of not only what men and women are, but also how men and women ought to be. Where that's really complex, right? And how you're gonna be measured up based on those standards is gonna really depend on things like how you're positioned by race and class and all these other things, because those affect how you are evaluated as a man or as a woman, or as I've often experienced, neither a man nor a woman, which is the third position that people really never talk about. And so if that's what's going on, then that tells us something really important about anti-discrimination law, which is that anti-discrimination law has to be trying to stop practices of remaking understandings of gender and understandings of race and so on, overlapping understandings, like I just said, right? Like how you're evaluated by in light of gender depends on race, how you're evaluated in light of race depends on your gender, but it has to be about keeping people from remaking these sorts of devaluing, hierarchy producing and justifying social meanings and social practices. So one of the things that does come to mind, and I apologize if this is a slightly redundant question, is that we're experiencing a time of increased polarization. We're experiencing a time where people have these normative values that are incredibly disparate about not just gender, but just how we should treat one another. And forgive me if I've misinterpreted this, but it sounds like you're um, advocating for this independent normative theory about what the proper way is to treat just our fellow citizen. And so how do we protect ourselves against a more nefarious view of what is appropriate to treat our citizen like, in, especially in these very fraught political times? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's just an issue of value here that I think is one that is the substantive question. And that's the question that people are always having. That's the reason why like laws do change is because people's ideas about that change over time. And I mean, since I and no philo other philosopher is God or has like the correct moral view or access to all the moral knowledge, I mean, we just kind of have those conversations. And I think, but the, to pretend that we don't need to have those substantive conversations because like legal textualism is gonna tell us how to like enforce anti-discrimination law and justice will prevail. I mean, that that's just mythical thinking. It's not even trying to attempt the hard work. Totally, and I was so glad that you brought up how similar the, the, the reasoning was in the opinion versus the dissent. It was, because it, you could very easily tweak it yeah. to go whichever way you wanted it to. Yeah. Right, it's just hiding those those different normative, those like different ethical ideas under the surface. Hi, Richard. Hello. Hello, everybody. 
So, um, hi, uh, thanks for coming on. And I'm, uh, this is really a fascinating discussion. I've got a gazillion questions, but I'm not going to ask a gazillion of them. Um, uh, but, uh, so the question that comes immediately to my mind is, I, I'm curious, so I, I read the interview that you linked to on your, um, in your Twitter profile, uh, and uh, which is very fascinating in itself. Um, I'm curious, what, what do you, and I mean specifically you, mean by the metaphysics of gender? And I, I realize that this hinges partly on what you mean by metaphysics. Um, and then that leads me to ask, if we, if we dismantle the traditional metaphysics of gender, where sex and gender, among other things, are tied closely together, are we done with talking about metaphysics in relationship to gender, or is there something like another metaphysics that's going to take its place? Yeah, great, great question. It gets into some like complicated meta philosophy too, and also loops back to what I was saying at the beginning about explanations being relative to your interests. So I don't think that the word gender has one fixed meaning. I think people use the word gender in lots of different ways, in lots of different contexts, because they're trying to do different kinds of things. And so when I talk about the metaphysics of gender, and this is where the feminist part comes in, I am interested in describing the things in the social world that we think of as gender injustice, that somehow historically track back to an exploitative division of reproductive labor that then became institutionalized and entrenched and systematic and more complex. And then we see vested the, the descents of that system in our system today. And so that's what, that's what I mean by that. And that thing, I think, will continue to persist in various forms until you undo some of the core values that are really at the heart of those social meanings. But there's not like a, there's so many different ways that patriarchy could manifest in the future that I think would still be patriarchy, including one, importantly, on which gender identity is the grounds for being a man or a woman, right? Like being having a penis or a vagina making you a man or a woman is not required for a society to be patriarchal. And so I think it's really important for us to understand like that these systems have so much flexibility over time. So we don't think, yes, we've done it. We've created justice just because some kind of tiny modification has been made. Hi. Okay. So my question is, what are your thoughts on the difference between or similarities between gender expression that happen on a day-to-day -day basis or on a weekly basis, short-term versus long-term? And what I mean by that is, um, for example, like when I go to the gym, I'm, if we're taking like the most standard, you know, thoughts about what is feminine and masculine. When I go to the gym, I'm more masculine and aggressive. And when, you know, I dress up and go to a party, I'm more feminine. And this is happening on a daily basis. It happens on a weekly basis. It kind of reminds me as well as like code switching, which is more cultural. But I just wonder what are the differences philosophically on that versus the long-term view that we have of gender expression and the gender spectrum and maybe to the critics who don't think that a gender spectrum <laughs> is a thing yet change their personalities all the time. Totally, yeah, good. So I, to kind of tie the two pieces of your question together, I wanna to make a distinction between doing things that are considered masculine or feminine and intentionally doing things that are considered masculine or feminine. Because like you said, when people move through different spaces, they're constantly doing things. Like there is no one who's a perfectly, a perfect real man or a perfect real woman, right? Like <laughs> the things that are labeled as masculine or feminine are things that are just human. And so that's why gender is, in, in one of the many reasons why gender is such a 
horrible system is that it really constrains what we can be as humans because we're set to like one set of norms that says you can't be angry or another one says that you can't cry or whatever, but either way you're being limited as a human being. But then there's a separate issue of like fluidity. And I think that's when under you have, is more complex, right? Like you understand how other people are gonna see something and there's something else that's connected to them seeing you in that way. That's how you want to be in that context. And so you intentionally perform things that are coded as masculine or things that are coded as feminine or some maybe like interesting blend of the two because you're trying to kind of coordinate with other people, not not explicitly, but like implicitly coordinate with how other people are going to see and treat you. And there I think it should just be really obvious that of course people have all sorts of different kinds of preferences with respect to how to do that. Like some people really like being very narrow. They have like one like specific set of masculinity. They wear white t-shirts and blue jeans every day and they should have the same facial hair and like that's how they wanna be seen all the time. But then there's people on the far end and everywhere in between. So I think it's, I think like your question really brings out some of the complex things that are going on when we talk about gender expression. Mateo. The floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I had a couple questions. Do you have any preferences to which one? How about both? Sure. Um, uh, so thanks for being with us. I think your work is just super cool. Um, so my first question uh, is brought on by the political environment. Uh, I wonder if doing work in the area that you do, uh, if your writing process has been affected by a fear that some random sentence will be taken way out of context and uh, used by uh, an ideological opponent for something that you wouldn't like, and, and if that's affected the way that you write, and then I'll uh, hold my other one to after. I think that that has been on my mind a little bit when I write op-eds or popular pieces, but it hasn't affected my academic writing because the fact is like, if people want to take a sentence out of context from a 25 page academic paper and interpret it, interpret the terms in it, however they want, whatever, they're just going to do that. There's, there's really no way to stop that in your writing of an academic paper. Uh, Robin, did you, or did you not say X is psi if and only if phi? <laughs> Where once you fill in what the variables mean, it's something really, really messed up. <laughs> But I also think you're totally safe now because, you know, the the uh, the uh, attack has moved on to critical race theory. And uh, there's just, you know, you're you're <laughs> you guys are are passe at this point. It, <laughs> you, you were like February's uh, Fox News uh, hate darlings. Yeah, I think what the people the people don't realize is that they're like two sides of the same coin: queer and feminist theory and critical race theory. Well, I, actually, is there? If I could just jump in for a second about that, why do you think that um, that uh, gender orientation, I mean, sexual orientation and gender identity, did not become part of Trumpism? um that is um like there there's like in a way gay people and trans people were somehow um at least in terms of the overt rhetoric spared um mm -hmm. what, what is that why is that it's just kind of you know i'm just totally shooting for the hip here like if you like if i had to like be like maybe this 
I think my answer would be like something about segregation, like segregation along racial lines versus segregation along sexual orientation and identity lines, where I think a lot of people like their kids are now trans or their kids have friends who are like gay or, you know, there's just much more contact across communities, I think, than there still is with respect to racial communities. And I think there's, my impression is that there's still a lot more um, stereotyping and fear in when it comes to race than when it comes to things like someone in the abstract who's of course someone in the abstract is always imagined to be the same race as you being white or being trans it's also something that's very easily identifiable in terms of race like you see someone and you're like okay as we said they don't check right exactly yes it's it's, it's definitely like a within race <laughs> race hugely impacts the the readings of sexual orientation and gender although as someone also pointed out in the chat christopher that uh like just because there wasn't there were there were targeted targeted attacks on trans people in the trump administration i agree with you that it didn't become like part of trumpism like the people outside of the administration in the same way but that kind of toxic masculinity is certainly still part of Trump. It was also, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was never part of Trump's rhetoric. It was, it was what was an essential part of Trump's rhetoric was, you know, a kind of toxic machismo that is itself part of the problem. Yeah. Mateo? Oh, I muted myself. Sorry about that. Uh, my other question was uh, just about how your field got started. It seems like the philosophy, metaphysics, and gender and sexuality kind of needs itself to justify further development in the field. How do you get started uh, when you need the field to be taken seriously to continue using the field to justify the field? Yeah, I mean, this is always an issue of like, it's kind of like a classic pipeline issue in many ways too, right? It's like, who gets into grad school? Which of those people get jobs? Which of those people get tenure? And what are those people interested in publishing in? And who listens to them? And like, in analytic philosophy, it took people like, you know, Sally Hasslinger and Elizabeth Anderson and people who often got tenure publishing on things that had nothing to do with feminist philosophy and then after they got tenure, made the transition to talking about these issues and started to normalize talking about them. But very much when you ask about like the field, there's like the field as it exists within analytic philosophy and then like the field as it exists within like academia. And then, right, like there's so many different ways of, of talking about what the field of feminist studies is, but that I've just given you an answer. It was kind of like specifically to like analytic departments. I, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, I was muted, sorry. I'm going to ask a question. Um, do, should I say who it's from? Uh, ben, from? Ben, you're also muted. Sorry, yeah, sure, he, uh, uh, okay. he, he uh, okay. asked to you to read it rather than, because he can't come on screen. Oh, oh, I see, that's why, okay. So this is Cor it's, uh, from Corwin. Um, so uh, my question is, how do we communicate academic ideas about gender and race better to the general public? How can we have better public discourse about gender and critical race theory when most of the public conversation is dominated by people who are passionately against and criticize critical race theory or the works of people like yourself or Judith Butler on gender when most of the people criticizing have not read a single word by a critical race theory or by Butler? Yeah. 
I mean, I think there's no one answer to that question because there are different reasons why people react to these conversations. But I think the one thing that I have found true almost across the board in my experience is that it is often the case, no matter how much you disagree with someone, that they see something about the world that you don't see. And I think that in these conversations in particular, when it has to do with things like gender, people are coming to these conversations because they have an experience of gender that they're not seeing reflected in what you are saying. And they're reacting to that because they don't feel seen and they feel like if you're right, then they're erased in some sort of way. And so I found that trying to like really listen and like hear where people are coming from and acknowledge what is true about their experience and how what they understand about their experience is not different than what I'm saying about my experience is kind of, it's a really, really difficult path, right? There's like many conversations that are required. You can't do it in tweets. At least I'm, I've never experienced being able to do it in tweets, but I really think that that's the only way to sort of diffuse these extreme tensions. Scott, you just remuted yourself. I was, I was so excited that, <laughs> that I was able to talk and muted <laughs> myself. So, so you, can I ask you a question? Because I'm always curious about um, about this, which is, do you find your work exhausting? That is, um, I feel yes. like yeah, right. so I feel like I'm lucky. Well, in some sense, like law is all around, and I work on computer stuff now, and computers are all around. But in some sense, like it doesn't. I mean, I care about it emotionally, but it doesn't really go, you know to to like my emotional well it does but but it shouldn't go to my emotional center but like the things that you're 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 arguing about are things that i not only i you probably feel very passionately about but your interlocutors feel very passionately about and it would be kind of nice to have like just a fight about modal logic or something like that <laughs> don't you think i mean is it is it exhausting you know, so yes, it's exhausting, but also the for the same reasons that it's exhausting, it's like incredibly rejuvenating and exciting and rewarding. Um, like I have had people come up to me after talks who like were crying because I helped them make sense of their experience in some way. And I'm an analytic philosopher, right? Like that doesn't happen to him. And so it's exhausting. It's a, like a lot, it's a lot of emotional labor. Um, it's a lot of ex being harassed on the internet. It's a lot of all of those things, but I just, it feels it's like, it feels more like a calling to me. It feels like something that's like incredibly important to me. If I didn't do this thing, I wouldn't stay in philosophy. Go ahead. I, I, so I was just saying, you, you said you wouldn't stay in philosophy if you couldn't do this thing. Is that true? I mean, I know you said it, so it's true. But um, I want to say, say more about it. Like, does like the game of philosophy not interest you enough in the sense that like, you know, like it's really fun. I mean, you can like argue yeah. about Plato and it, you, you know, you can just get really into it and it's really fun philosophy is like super fun so super fun were, yeah even if you weren't doing like let's say you didn't have the job that you had and you really had to spend most of your time teaching like history of philosophy and things like that it would still be like a pretty cool way to spend your life no 
Oh, well, I think, so there's a difference between just having arguments about modal logic forever and being able to do things like teach history of philosophy. Like <laughs> when I am reading Aristotle with like first year students, you're getting to do this real stuff. You're getting to like try mm -hmm. that play. I think of all that play, that plays about getting tools for understanding yourself in the world. And that play, all those counterexamples, these things, they're super fun, but they also give us really helpful tools. Like you started out, when you said the at the beginning of the show, you said something like, I do the kind of philosophy that, that people care about, which is unusual. And it's like, yes, that's true, but also I can do that kind of philosophy because of the philosophy that people do that no one cares about. Right? Like all these technical tools that I have are because of them. Um, and so I, I think that for me, being able to apply those tools in the ways that I do is really important to me, but I totally agree with you that the formation of the tools and using them, just that, that in and of itself is fun and I think meaningful. So very serious question. Um, uh, as an analytic philosopher, how do you feel about Scott's tweets? <laughs> I, I love Scott's Twitter, honestly. I, I often am concerned for Scott's apparent lack of sleep, but, but I enjoy the. But you're uh, not worried that it's going to, you're not worried that it's going to bring the field of analytic philosophy into ill repute. Oh, that is not philosophy of no. ill repute. It's not well, right, right, right. I, I would just say, right, like, like of all the bad things you can say about me, Philosophy already deserves what it what it has, um, and I, I would I would say also like there I'm like in the intersection of a lot of bad things. Yeah, law school, <laughs> philosophy, positivism, Twitter. Um, uh, but, yes, but, um, yeah, that is but, true. Um, I, I would say that my, I would say that my tweets have humanized. Yes. what often would be understood to be a inhuman subject. I um, agree, and I, and I, I do you. agree. Thank and you. I, 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 I didn't even say that. I didn't even put that in your mouth. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it goes back to this, like, this divide, right, where I think part of the whole issue of Trumpism is a skepticism of experts, a skepticism of elites, a skepticism of people who have PhDs, a feeling of like, those people don't care about us, we don't know any of those people, like, and I think, you know, whether it's Scott's shit posting is one piece of, I think, showing that academics are people who are just people and that we don't exist on some sort of like plane where we look down at the peons and scoff at them. That, that, that's true. That I have been um, my, my project for the last five years on Twitter has been a social justice project. Um, outreach. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We said thank you very much. It's been a form of outreach. Um, it's a it's a way of trying to return trust to elites. Um, <laughs> one shit post at a time. Um, and it's so, a form uh, of performance art. Um, yeah. uh, but but. but, but Devoted but, but, to many things. I'm not yeah, sure yeah, but, but, that that but, but, is but, one of them. But yeah, but but social justice is really the <laughs> sun and bone of. Um, uh, actually, sleep more. <laughs> yeah. So and but what, I do you um uh, is it is it but um for somebody who holds the views that you do um do you find that social media is a very um um is a hostile place or a um 
you know, a mixed bag or like a great platform? Like, how would you? And it's also very difficult, of course, because you're, you're, you know, you're more junior in your career, which is always more difficult. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. You know, I, I've learned the hard way. You don't want to speak too the power too much on Twitter. Uh, oh yeah, de yeah, de yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. You really want to kiss. You really want to kiss Power's ass <laughs> at that at, at that point. But then, when you get tenure, then the, then it really it's yeah. just the limitation of the character count. Right. It's definitely all those things. You get the last question today, and those new glasses are fabulous. They're the old glasses. Well, they're still fabulous. Well, I agree, but they are the old glasses. Um, so uh, my question, my joke question, which you should not try to answer, is uh, does uh, ontology recapitulate uh, phenomenology, which is like a weird, the, it's the kind of joke that I come up with. But, but really, <laughs> the, serious, the, serious, the serious question is uh, about philosophy's usefulness to ordinary people. Quite often when I look, about, look at sort of the epistemological closure uh, that we see in a lot of sectors of society. One of the things that comes back to me again and again is that, you know, people ought to be routinely philosophically trained. I mean, the Greeks actually knew this, and the Romans sometimes knew it, uh, you know, with the trivium and the quadrivium and so on. But I, I just think if you could uh, shape, you know, with a wave of your hand, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, elementary and secondary education to instill some kind of philosophical training so people could think critically about their own ideas, what would you do? Yeah, so I, I get, I'm going to do the philosophical thing and make a distinction first between <laughs> philosophy and philosophy tools. Because when you say, like, is philosophy useful to people? I'm like, yes, everyone does philosophy. Everyone who, like, lays awake at night and thinks about the fact that they're going to die and thinks about the meaning of their life and thinks about their relationships, they're doing philosophy. I think that's a separate question from, like, do they have these tools that we've called the philosophical tools that are things like conceptual analysis or being able to, like, formulate arguments and so on. Are those things going to be helpful? Yeah, definitely. I think those things are helpful. I don't know if those things are more helpful than being able to do something like read and write poetry. I think it probably really depends on the person, you know, and like who is drawn to that set of tools as a way of understanding themselves and who's drawn to another set of tools as a way of understanding themselves in their life. So I don't, I don't think I wouldn't want to have like a philosophy only curricula, but I definitely think it should be among the set of tools that are offered to people in their education. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I just, I, it didn't occur to me that I might die. Um, so that, that, that fucking sucks. Sorry to ruin um, tonight. Uh, you really did. I mean, maybe even not tonight. Um, I, I have mean, a, I, I have a feeling we're going to see an, an embarrassing confession. <laughs> we are going to leave it there. Robin Dembroff, you're a great American. Great to meet you. Thank you for coming on. We are going to be back tomorrow, and I think, Genevieve, uh, you should explain who our guests are going to be, because uh, I, uh, I only know about them from your account, from your account. So tomorrow we're going to be joined with the two co-hosts of the Sharkpedia podcast. They are both uh, marine biologists who are doing, uh, and PhD students who are 
going to be talking to us about sharks, how they live, what it's like to do field work, and I'm very excited. That will be 23 hours and one minute from now. And until then, Scott? We can't have fun anymore, and apparently we can't have immortality, because I just found out <laughs> oh, that we're going to die. Um, you know, I know we're not it. supposed to quote Woody Allen anymore, but he his line, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work, I want to achieve it by not dying, <laughs> it's, it's, it's still good. We, we will see, uh, you, you, to so, see you, thank you tomorrow. Robin. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Robin.